My name is Dwayne Default, and welcome to Selling SaaS, a daily podcast that's built to get you quick hits of the best advice from the top experts for go-to-market strategies, sales, and product-led growth. Now let's get into today's episode. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Selling SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Default. And today we've got someone on the show that we were connected on LinkedIn pretty quickly through a mutual friend named Dan Goodman. If you haven't seen him on LinkedIn, talked about transparency and sales and the right and wrong ways to deal with that when you're leaving an organization. But it's interesting because our guest today spent 17 years in a particular industry and then kind of made a hard pivot in a completely different direction. And so it's been really great to kind of catch up with you, Chuck. And so if you can, I don't want to butcher it too much. Much more, but if you can kind of give the listeners a little bit background of like where you started and then how you went through those 17 years in industry and then what kind of made you go through that pivot where you're at now. Yeah. And thanks, first of all, for having me on the show. Super excited to be here. But to your point, after spending so much time in an industry, knowing the buying cycle, knowing how everything is different, for me, it was a life changing experience to switch from ed tech, K 12 sales to get into the ICM space that I'm in today. I started my career in sales. Just like everyone else out of, out of college, you struggle to find your first sales job because you don't have any experience and you just want somebody to take that shot on you. Well, I was lucky enough to work at a, a little local Italian restaurant and I met the owner of one of our local newspapers and he gave me a shot to come on and sell ad space for him. It was a commission only job. You really had to chase down and hustle out there. And working my way through high school and college taught me how to hustle. But putting that my student tie on for the first day when I had to go to one of the local dealerships and make a sales call went terribly. But I knew walking out of that, that this is what I want to do. I want to meet new people. I want to help solve their problems. And I want to create some longstanding relationships. I went from that role at the Boardman News to Enterprise Rent-A-Car, where I never in a million years would have thought that I would end up at a rental car company. But I spent about five years there. They have an excellent manager training program. And I was able to quickly move up through the ranks. And within three years, I was running the largest store in Northeast Ohio. And I enjoyed that. I had a large team. So I was constantly training and coaching and mentoring folks to get promoted to the next level. But it got to a point where I really wasn't forming the long-term relationships that I wanted. And I just had my first son. I was working about 70 hours a week. And my wife kind of put her foot down and said, hey, you're you're not home enough. And she was right. And that was a, a good point of my life to kind of take a step back and really realize what was important. Right around the same time is I'm having these conversations with my wife. I'm from Youngstown, Ohio. Not sure if you're familiar with the area. We, in the late 70s, early 80s, we had three major steel mills closed within a 10-day span. And the population dropped from 350,000 to about 150,000 in 10 years. So it really wasn't a lot going on in Youngstown. We had General Motors had a, a plant down the road, which my father and my uncle worked at. But there was a new startup that opened up in downtown Youngstown in the business incubator. And with from year one to year two, they showed about 5,700% growth. I was very interested in that. I Working in enterprise, I'd rented cars to some of the folks that were either in sales or customer support. So I got to learn a little bit about the company. And turns out when I went down for my first interview, I knew the hiring manager. And I cool. had just ran with the same crowd. So it was good to see a friendly face. And the interview went well. The VP of sales had some concerns that I didn't have any ed tech experience. So back to my first experience out of college, hey, we don't yeah. want to hire you without 
about the experience, but I convinced him to give me a shot. Some of the other folks that were on his team that had rented cars for me had put in a good word for me and gave me some background. So they gave me a shot as a junior account executive. And that got me out of the running a, a brand and being open from seven to seven, Monday through Friday, and then working on Saturdays and Sundays. So wow. you went from like a branch manager into a contributor role. Yes. Yes. Wow. How was that? And Just, it what was a big shift for you in there. It was a really big shift because I had, when I left Enterprise, I was running a team of 23 people. I had two assistant managers. I had some management assistants. Enterprise has different tiers for everything. Walking away from that role and knowing that, hey, I'm just responsible for myself now, it's kind of like the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders because that if I can focus on my strengths and my weaknesses, I would be able to get to a point where I can have an impact on the business. And that's really what I wanted to do. Working at startups, this is, I'm at my second startup now. It's always interesting. And when I started at Turning Tech, I wouldn't say we had a sales team. I'd say that we had a group of order takers. There was no outbound. And one of the first things I did was I came up with a target account list. And at the time, from the top down, CEO, CFO, VP of sales, they were focused on selling to individual teachers because because a teacher might have $2,000 budget. And within the first three months, I was able to, to hit my yearly quota. And the reason that I had done that is I was hopping on a plane to fly to St. Louis, let's say, to meet a couple teachers on the science department. They might spend $3,500, $4,000. Well, while I was there, I would also set a meeting with the building principal or the superintendent. I took our average sale in the division from around that, that $2,000 mark up to about $45,000 because because my thought process was, if I'm going all the way out here, I'm leaving my family to go show my product. Yeah. Why aren't I getting in front of more than just a couple people at once? If the, a budget of 2000 then the principal probably has a $20,000 budget. The director of IT might have a $200,000 budget. Really targeting those accounts and working my way up the food chain, in some cases, work from the, the bottom down, enabled me to just show some extreme pipeline growth. It was a lot of business. Six months in led to me moving to sales manager. So how did you come to that? What drove you to do that, to come in, go after target accounts and take the risk to go after those big deals? Was that something that you were taught in enterprise? Was that something you saw as an opportunity at Turning Technologies or like what made you do that? Yes. Part of it is the research that I had done when I was interviewing for Turning Technologies. I talked to a lot of my family that were teachers and I didn't understand how school budgets worked. I didn't understand how grants and budgets played into it. So the whole time in my head, I'm trying to think, how can I get my face out in front of more people? How can I get yeah. more reach? And I started thinking about what I had done at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. And one of the areas where I saw the similarities was you had to turn in three leads every month for a corporate account that you wanted to get signed up at Enterprise. Well, there mm -hmm. was um, a local branch of an insurance office that I went in to sign that person and his team up, and it ended up growing to the national level. I had one conversation, and it's spun off into something nationwide. And when I was sitting at my desk that first week and working at a startup, I had to put my actual desk together the first week. So mine was <laughs> planted because I'm not super handy. I just started thinking about the impact that my one conversation had on every other branch or enterprise across the country. Taking that mindset 
of having one conversation, amplifying it really just kept playing over and over in my head. And honestly, it wasn't long before I was, like I mentioned, going from the classroom teacher to the building principal to now I was reaching out to folks at at the State Department of Education. And I'm selling my product in Indiana. Next thing I'm testifying in front of their education committee about the power of our solution. And that was really the point where the CEO was like, hey, this guy's got the right idea. And the analogy he used, I loved, and I still use it to this day. He said, Chuck's out there, he's elephant hunting, and he's still hunting an occasional squirrel along the way if he runs into one. Setting a target really high and then being able to clean up or pick up the scraps and and everything underneath just enabled me to close deals every single day. I mean, that was my goal was to close an order every day. Wow. What's interesting is that instantly I had a flashback to I was one of my first true SaaS companies, SaaS startups that I worked with. We were selling software to commercial automotive companies, so specifically commercial truck trucking companies across the country. And you had the opportunity to sell either into big dealer groups, which was like multi-location type things, or you have the onesie, twosie mom and pop shop ones. And after being there for about three or four months and implementing some you know processes and whatnot, it became my goal to do a deal every single day, regardless of what it was. I always wanted to put something on the scoreboard that day. I kind of had the same mentality. It's like I would go out to locations. Uh, I would have a strategic account mindset where I would call into these places and plan out a week's worth of meetings, banking on only half of them keeping because that's just the nature of sales. And along the way, if I saw dealerships that weren't like on my list or weren't technically in my account list or anything like that, I would pull in there. Like I would purposely drive to those locations early by a couple hours. So I would have time to stop and I would go into these dealerships, these locations and sell them, pitch them the product, go do discovery and open up an opportunity. They wouldn't work every time. And I think it only worked a handful of times to be honest, but it was one of those things where just that little goal that really led to like really big outcomes. I'm fascinated on that, the mindset to take the risk and go do those things and be having that, that sales mentality to go after the big deals, but then having the humility and the ability to still sell to the small ones. Cause I feel like modern sales reps, they have this ego where I'm only a whale hunter or they're only doing high volume, high velocity. So like what keeps sales reps from kind of having that approach of taking the risk for going big, but then also being able to see the opportunities along the way. And honestly, for me, it was that I believed in the product. I had the data to back up. This product was helping out teachers and students and and everyone involved in the assessment process. So my mindset was, hey, I'm helping this district. But what about this teacher at this small rural school? She's got 25 kids that, that she needs to keep engaged too. So I looked at it more as I was helping to help teacher raise the test scores. And I didn't want to miss anybody. I wanted to give everybody the opportunity to utilize the technology to learn because as we all know, technology moves forward at such a fast pace. And again, we had data, we had all kinds of metrics to back up how we were able to help. And I just wanted to cast a wide net and get as many people in front of the product because I knew if they saw it, they would see the power in it. And and honestly, that's there were a couple of times where I would go to the district, meet with one or two people. By the time I would get home, by the time my, my plane would touch down, I'd have three or four voicemails from maybe someone else in the district or, hey, I heard you met with my sister-in-law this week. Just oh. going there, being friendly, being willing to go and do some training in person as opposed to doing it online and creating yeah. those relationships. It really helps people to understand that not just me, but we as a company, we have this solution that's going to make your life easier and you're going to see the impact 
impact for years in your students. I try to keep that in my mind too. Honestly, like it's such a lost art, man. There's so many things that you just said from belief in product to getting behind and having conviction on the solution to doing the work on going on location, having those conversations and making connection. I feel like there's an immense amount of patience that you had to go through that, that just is lost in modern sales, especially in tech. And so just big question here is like, how did you make the shift from rental cars to believing in a product enough in dealing with teachers and education to make that leap? Is that something that was taught to you? Was that an onboarding training thing? Like, where did that come from? Honestly, a lot of it came from the research that I did getting prepped for my interviews. And it was a Mm. long interview process. I have a friend whose brother was a superintendent. I talked to him. I talked to users of our product. I went to the university where they were using it. I knew someone who had used a competitor. And I'm going through and trying to determine the success stories and what I wanted to talk about when I got to the final interview. And like I said, the VP of sales had some reservations, but I'd already met with the CEO and he just saw the amount of effort that I put into it and how excited I was to be part of the organization. And I honestly think the CEO is the one that did kind of trump the VP of sales and said, no, I I need to hire this guy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, good thing. So on that note though, like there's a a constant pushback I get because I work with a lot of tech founders, implementing hiring plans, all that stuff, roles. How important is, in your opinion, how important is industry experience versus domain experience? What I mean is, for example, going into turning technologies some 17, 20 years ago, not having industry experience in ed tech, but having sales experience versus having ed tech experience, but limited sales. Like, where do you find the most success to come from? What is the combination or the experience you look for that translates to success? I just think for someone to be successful, they need to believe in themselves. They need to be able Mm. to know that they're up for the challenge. And I don't want to say I was a little bit different. Some of the other folks I work with with enterprise or at school, but I just knew at the end of the day, this is what I want to do. I want to be Mm. in business. I want to be just like my uncle Fred and my uncle Jack. I want want to be just like those guys. And I'm going to push myself to do whatever I can to get there. A lot of it was me asking for encouragement from folks within my network. And Mm. I'm lucky enough to have a a really big family. Just on my mom's side of the family, I have 32 first cousins and eight eight uncles. And the majority of them were in sales. From the time that I was young and started hustling with my first paper out of 12, my uncle's telling me how to invest my money. And I'm very lucky. I have a mentor that's been there with me since I was little. And he shoots me straight. Sometimes he tells me the absolute thing that I don't want to hear. But if I'm not hearing it, I don't know that I'm truly feeling it. So him being able to shoot me straight really led me to believe what I'm capable of and what I need to do to get there. The shooting the straight thing. How do you feel reps get through that right now? Well, I mean, it's tough out there right now. I'm in the partner space. So I talk to a lot of our strategic companies and partners. I don't think a lot of reps like to hear the true facts. I yeah. think they like to potentially try to find a, a reason that they're not number one this year. They've been number one the past three years. Now, hey, maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's something else. I think what helps is taking a really good look at yourself in the mirror and mm-hmm. asking, am I still bought in? 
do I still have the drive and, and the heart for this that I did when I signed that contract to, to start with the organization? Because I went through the economic downturn in, in 2008, and with it again, the people I know that successful in 2008 they're still successful now. They continue to push themselves to try different things, not be afraid to ask why you received a no and dig a little bit deeper. Because even if you lose a deal, okay, the deal's lost, but you can still learn from not only the sales cycle that you went through, but stay in touch with that person that you lost the deal to. See how things are going. See why, hey, you told me that you were going with XYZ company for these reasons. Does that still hold true? And if, if it does, great. What can you learn? from that and take it and use it in your next pitch or your next sales cycle so that you can ensure that you don't make the same mistakes twice. No, and there's a lot of power in what you just said. When people lose a deal, they think they failed. In my experience, it took me a long time to get over that too. Like when I was early in my sales career, a no was like earth shattering. And it took me a couple of years to really get through that whole feeling inadequate and feeling like I failed every single time I lost a deal. And it took getting so many no's and still being alive, like still having a job, even though you got a know. And I I feel like a lot of sales reps both been in the role for 10 years or 10 days is they feel like they, any no that they get any deals that they lose, it's like at the end of the world, they're going to get fired. They're going to get let go. So how do you make a full shift here when your current role, which is really interesting, the topic we're on, because that kind of plays full circle right into where you're at now with SPIF, where it deals directly with sales compensation and getting sales reps motivated and all that stuff. So like, how have you seen reps whether it's an SDR account executive, be more motivated using money, immediate access to money. How do you see the correlation to money and motivation and reps being bought in? Is there a connection there? What have you kind of seen over the last couple of years since being in that world? Yeah. And that's a great question. I mean, we're all in sales to make money. There's other reasons. Money is the main driver. And I would, in a previous life, when I was VP of sales at my first startup, I'd have a matrix where at the end of every day, I'd get out my dry erase board and go over and fill them out just to give the team visibility. Maybe somebody had a great day. Okay. Well, why did Dwayne have a good day? He was able to book seven meetings today and I just got one. Hey, I'm going to listen to Dwayne tomorrow. I'm going to ask him for his email templates because creating that competitive environment, it it really drives people to succeed too. Obviously, again, money is the number one motivator, but what I truly love about Spiff and and why I I came here is the visibility that the solution gives so motivating as sales reps, not just because it's going to tell them down to the penny what's going to be in their next commission. It can tell them how much they'll make on a specific deal if it closes this month this quarter, but it shows where you're at um, compared to the team. And we track so many different metrics and KPIs that you can look at yourself and how you're doing and compare yourself to anyone on the team and use that information to learn from them. And again, it's all about that visibility. If I'm coming up short on a specific area and one of my colleagues is successful, I want to learn from them. Like I'd mentioned earlier, I want to hear what they're saying. I want to replicate what they're doing. But on the flip side of that, if I'm doing something that's not working, I want my coworkers to to see that so that they're able to give me suggestions. Hey, we're hmm. trying this week instead of doing what we had done in the past. So it kind of works both ways, but having that visibility, not just into the actual dollars you're making in commissions, but into activity levels, into what the rest of your teammates are doing is really a motivator and a driver as well. Yeah, gosh, it's an interesting way to look at it. I've always looked at sales rep transparency as accountability and, and competition for the positive way and to look at it that way. I've never really looked at it through the lens of, 
of, I want them to see when I do something wrong and them to reach out to me. And I feel like most of the time it's kind of the opposite. Like they don't want people to see their screw ups. And so they kind of hide behind the CRM a little bit. How do you create that conversation? Like how do you foster that open and vulnerable mentality on a sales team for them to be comfortable with that? Yeah. It's interesting for me. I work in Ohio. The rest of the team is mostly out West. Knowing what I know now from my 17 years in ed tech, one of the first mistakes I made here, I was very vocal about it. I posted in a Slack channel and I asked advice from multiple folks. I asked for somebody from product. I had asked for someone from marketing for help. And I wanted everyone to know that I was vulnerable and I wanted help. And I got a lot of positive feedback, a lot of direct messages with people offering to give me some time. And I think me doing that and coming out and saying, hey, I messed up, but I don't want to do it again. I want to learn from someone else who's had success here. I think that started a conversation within the rest of the group because now we have a meeting once a week for 45 minutes where we talk just about our, our failures. And the reason around that is we don't want anybody else to have to go through that again. If I fell down and skinned my knee, why wouldn't you want to hear from me about how I got hurt so that you don't have to get hurt in the future? And for us, that really fostered an environment of people coming to this meeting. There's no leadership that was invited. And we all just talked openly about what we're doing, what went wrong, what would you have done differently, and how we're going to move forward knowing what we know now. And that's, I think, is a key part of that where, and it'd be interesting to unpack it a little bit, is that leadership was not invited. And again, just to clarify everyone that's listening to this, when you went from another ed tech company, you went back into being an account executive. So you were a VP at the other startup for many years. And then when you went into SaaS, specifically with Spiff.com, you're back into an AE role. And just so everyone's aware, like you're not a director or a VP outside looking in talking about this. You were the one in those meetings having those conversations. So how did that come about though? Was that one DM between another rep to you? Was that something that people suggested? Was that something you started? Like, how did that meeting happen? Yeah. So it was one of my colleagues. We had a Slack channel for the the new folks that had started. And his name's Tom, just an awesome guy. He would go out yeah. of his way to help everybody out. And I remember somebody dropped something in the channel about something they did good and we all celebrated it. And honestly, I had so much to learn spending a decade and a half or more in one space. I'm still trying to catch up on the terminology yeah. and the different personas. So I felt like I was behind the eight ball and I had made a pretty blatant mistake where maybe being two months at the company, I shouldn't have. But again, I, I was vulnerable, dropped it in the channel. And we all decided to hop on an impromptu call and, and have a discussion. And we decided at that point moving forward how much value there was in all of us just talking about what's not working and what we can improve upon. And we decided to tell our VP of sales at the time that we're going to have that meeting. We just felt that people would be more open and honest if leadership wasn't there. And honestly, it worked out better because more people were willing to share. They were getting critiqued by their peers, not necessarily their leadership. And it just, again, it just fostered a relationship where I know they still have that meeting, even though I've moved on to a different role. Occasionally, when I make a mistake or learn something new in my new role, I ask if I could hop in the meeting and so I could share with everyone and, and get feedback. Yeah, you can't be afraid to make a mistake. And again, when you're vulnerable and show that you're looking to learn, people are more willing to help. Yeah, gosh, it's a lot to unpack on there. But one of the things I feel like calling out is there's like a dark side to that 
where it's turned into like this virtue signaling thing on social media where people will openly talk about something they did wrong as a way to tell people that they're vulnerable and getting better. And it's almost like counterintuitive when they do that. But in this situation, it's like a private thing between a group of people. It's not shared out to the world. And it's meant to be among the group of people going through whatever it is. How do you think that affected the team? Positively, did they feel, did it help them be more comfortable on calls? Did it change the culture of the teams? What positive impact do you think it had to the organization? Yeah, I mean, the positive impact, besides us becoming closer, since we're starting to look at each other's strengths and weaknesses and how we could complement each other, it just prepared us for those no's that me and you talked about that we hated hearing earlier in our career. We started to realize that we're selling into more competitive deals. And again, just learning from the mistakes of myself and others just Mm. made us all more confident when we were on those calls because on a normal week when let's say we have 45 minutes we might get through five or six stories of hey this is where we made mistakes this is how we're gonna fix it and become better and yeah. then before we met for the next week we're all thinking about those things in the back of our minds and how we can utilize them to ensure that we're hitting the ball out of the park every at bat that we get yeah coming to the table with ways that you haven't succeeded it's an interesting way to look at it because we always hear the clear cliche saying of a wise man learns from their own mistakes or a smart person learns from their own mistakes, wise person learns from other people's mistakes. And that's very challenging if people aren't talking about their mistakes. And then you're kind of like in this weird siloed world of I'm just screwing up left and right. And now I don't want to be the only one talking about my weaknesses and fear of looking bad. And so it's, I think it's just a, a lost art in society today where it's like people are, their vulnerability has turned into kind of like virtue signaling and and then on the other side of things, there's been a, I've seen a lot of people take the topics from those conversations and kind of, I don't want to say directly use it against them, but in a way, make it their own and, and benefit from it. And so I, there's like, how did you facilitate it? Were there like any rules of engagement? Were there any specifics that would allow people in? Or did you kick like, how did you continue that and facilitate that meeting? So that way it continued to be healthy. Yeah, we just, we had a rule, be respectful. And I think what really got people opening up is I went in with a couple specific examples where I dropped the ball and I kind of tried a way to, to make it seem a little fun like something to laugh at. But doing that got people to be more comfortable. We all got a good laugh out of it. But then we realized how serious it was. So uh, again, just making sure that we laid out clear expectations uh, about the meeting, no negative feedback, only positive, everybody come with something to share. It just got to be a a place where it was an outlet for people. If they're struggling with the same thing, it just enabled them to kind of get their voice back and understand that, hey, I'm not the only one who's had this issue. It's happening to a couple other people on the team. Now that we know that, now we're able to look forward and see what can we do about that? What are some specific things we could put in place to ensure that these aren't the reasons why people are telling us? Is it messaging to the email? What kind of story are we including in our outreach? How can we gain their interest before they just say no? Because I'm sure you agree. Every time you go to sell somebody something, the first answer out of their mouth is, no, I don't have budget. Yeah. That's just an easy out for them. They know that, okay, that's good enough for me. I'm able to move on where I know that's going to be the most commonly heard response. Being able to come back with a, okay, I understand you don't have budget. Not only find out 
when their budget is, but one of my favorites is, okay, well, if the product was free, is this something that you would use? And mm-hmm. if they respond yes to that, that tells me they see value in, in the product and then they'll help find a way to get budget for that. So I think yeah, I have a little no, track there, but that's fine. I think it's just, a, it gives people just another kind of sliver in the tool belt there, but it's on the, just that meeting itself that I'm spending so much time on is because it's, I think it's very important for people to find ways to have a different level of connection and camaraderie among their peer group. So they don't feel alone. Like we're still working in a remote environment and people, they tend to kind of hermit crab. They go into their own little holes or their silos and don't communicate enough, especially new people in tech companies. And so I think there's a lot of power and I don't want to say like suffering together, but it's like when you know, or when you hear or understand when someone else is going through the same struggle you are, it's like all of a sudden you have like instant connection with them and it allows you to be comfortable stepping into the environment that you can potentially screw up again because you know that's not going to end you. You're not going to lose your job not going to die. Everything's going to be okay because you have that other person that you can lean on in that situation and get better together. And I think that's saying that more and more people need to understand that and the power of doing that and not just acting like you're perfect all the time because of what social media portrays. Now, kind of pivoting a little bit, and you mentioned it a couple minutes ago where you're in partnerships now. And so that is a very interesting topic. I love developing channel partnerships as a major go-to-market strategy for companies because it, there's so much involved in developing alliances or partnerships or integrations and whatnot. And so walk us through a little bit of how you've seen partnerships or alliances, however you want to describe it, play a role in the growth of a true SaaS company. Because I feel like a lot of companies, they're like, oh, we have partnerships. We've got these integrations. They're there, but that's not really doing anything for us. But when you lean into those, it's such a major lever that people can pull when they do it right. And so in your situation with Spiff and the experience that you've had from sales, how have you seen partnerships play that role in growth and revenue and sales and all of that? Yeah. And I, during my time at EdTech, I did spend six months in the partnership space. So that's kind of the reason why I'm in role today. But mm. in order for a, a partnership or alliance team to be successful, it has to be a two-way street. And a lot of times when you have those initial conversations, one person's afraid to budge and give first where mm. I always come out of the gate offering to give before I get because that what just do you mean by that? My, like um, giving what to who? A lead. Let's just use a lead as an example. I'm working with one of my customers. They need to, they're just getting a, some new funding and they need to upgrade their systems. I know who our integrations are with. I know who our partners and strategic partners are. And I want to be yeah. able to help out my customers. I'm going to reach out to one of my partners and find out who the account executive is over this account that I'm currently working. And I want to bring that account executive in, make a warm introduction, be able to use the relationship that I've set up to open a door for them to come in and create an opportunity and get a potential sale. So that's kind of the give piece. And when I set up our new partnerships, I just do some real generic account mapping just to make sure that I'm utilizing everybody's time correctly. We check for some account overlaps. And if let's say there's a handful of four or five accounts that we have overlap in, what I'm going to do is do some research on those accounts and see what it's going to take for me to 
to make a warm introduction or walk that other AE in from a partner company into the company that we're yeah. trying to sell to into the opportunity. And it just shows them that we're really a true partner where we understand that we can't get everything done by ourselves. And the more that we continue to move up into the enterprise and strategic space, you need help from your partners to influence and help close deals. And some yeah. of our partners, they've been working with these companies for five, six, seven years where maybe Spiff only has a, a 90 day relationship. Having a strong partnership allows them to talk to their contacts at the company and say, hey, we work with Spiff consistently. Those guys are the real deal. They know what they're doing. Let me know if you want any more background or you want to learn anything else about Spiff and, and I can facilitate it. Just to kind of clarify a little bit. And the reason why I want to dive in a little bit deep here is because partnerships gets a very interesting reputation. And so I want to make sure that people understand that there's two things here. One, let's call it a lucrative partner strategy. And as an account executive, how to leverage partnerships in your outreach, in your prospecting. So what you're saying is you're able to look at your customer base. So you, what you did is you found existing customers of yours that you want to refer over to your partners. Is that what you're doing first? Okay. Yeah. So you're finding potential overlap and customers that are already of yours, but maybe not of your partners. You refer them to that partner. How long does it usually take for you to get something back from that particular um, partner? It differs, but I'm actually very surprised at how quick it's been happening. I might make that introduction and typically anywhere from two weeks to a month later, I'm getting hmm. something back. Hey, Chuck, I talked to a customer. Commissions came up. They're having these problems. Can you help? And now we're back to them doing me a favor, but they're also doing their customer a favor by bringing Spiff to the table and using their network and, and being a trusted advisor to their customer by bringing Spiff on board. So not only does that maybe give, if we close the opportunity, do they get a little bit of rev share? In the customer's mind, it lets them know that our partner is looking out for their best interest by bringing along someone else who can solve some of the, the pains that they have within their organization. And there's something very important to call out in that particular situation is recognizing the fact that you're bringing more of a positive, beneficial solution to the customer by including a partner. It's you're amplifying your authority in that particular deal, that particular uh, opportunity. And so what is the difference that you've seen a successful partner AE or a partner channel, whatever the mindset has when approaching deals? Because oftentimes, just kind of give you some context, when I'm working with another partner team or an established marketplace, and they've got teams where they don't see the partner as part of the opportunity. It's just like, give me your pricing and I'll include it in my deck. And then if they agree, then you can bring, you can come in. What's the right approach that you've seen that works consistently. Yeah, and to your point, there's some partnerships where maybe somebody's afraid to bring me in on a deal because they don't want to slow down their sales cycle. And, and it potentially sure. could. It could mess up the implementation times or many other things. But really, again, just keeping an eye out for what's best for the customer. And mm. if you could continue to put the customer first, it's always going to work out better in your favor. My grandma used to tell me, you do something right, two or three people are going to hear about it. You do something wrong, 100 people are going to hear about it. This kind of plays into that. In SaaS, and especially the past few years, people aren't staying for 10, 15 years like they did at the beginning of my career. They're two years yeah. and they're out. So you take care of that person. They jump ship and go to their next company. They're not going to forget that you went out of the, your way to help them. And that's just a way to organically grow the business, especially 
from the partnership side of things. But both account executives and sales leadership all have to have the same mindset that, sure, we, we want our chunk of the revenue, but we're in this together because at the end yeah. of the day, our goal is to solve the pains of this customer and have them walk away with a, a favorable opinion of both companies. Yeah, it's a good thing to call out there. Like, where have you seen, and this may be a loaded question or not, or too specific, but it's like, when you look at the three primary segments of business in SaaS or in general, you have your SMB, your mid-market and enterprise. Where have you seen partnership approaches work the best? Honestly, and I'm very surprised by this answer, I've seen it really work the best in the enterprise space. I was, and again, this is the one thing that was surprising to me because when I took over the Alliance division, our average deal was probably 25K in ARR, which is really at the low end for SPIP. But when we're starting to have these conversations with these large companies that maybe they have 20,000 full-time employees, maybe they have four or 5,000 sales reps, being able to lean on their CRM or their ERP vendor that we have a direct integration or connection with to find out, hey, what do you know about this account? What do you know about the legal process, the security process? That does a couple different things. It obviously creates that relationship between you and the other AE, but Mm -hmm. you're letting them know what's going on in their account. And in some cases, if you are able to tie that partnership to that account, then it just creates more stickiness within the target that that both companies are going after. Because now, hey, I'm Chuck and Dwayne, they each sell different products, but they're helping me solve this solution. And the word's going to get out not only internally at the company that, hey, we have a strong relationship with both these folks that are trying to help us out. More of those success stories get out, especially at our partner companies, the more we see AEs wanting to work with us because we're able to fill in the gaps or fill in the blanks on some things that maybe they weren't able to get an answer on. We have all that in our notes. Let's attack this together. Let's see what you're missing. Interesting on that specific topic, not having all the notes or not. One of the things that I ran into when building a channel partnership or whatever you want to call it is the reps from the other partner from that sales process typically don't know or just don't ask the types of questions that your product is related to, but can help their sales process, right? Like I I built a massive partnership between a payroll company and a time tracking company. And it's like, they can map all the things they want to do when it comes to payroll, right? You do all the things, you have all the custom codes and all the employee details, but it's like they were lacking the information about how the time data actually got into the payroll system. And so when the prospects were asking those questions, it's like they just weren't aware of the technical specifications to cover or to ask about what are the nuances. And so when they partnered with the time tracking piece, it was like they were crafting a solution specific to that customer because of the nature of those two businesses in their relationship. And so I often go back when I'm working in partnership or I'm helping someone build a partnership, I go back to the founder of HubSpot, Brian Halligan, years ago when he was revamping HubSpot's partner program. One of the things that really stuck out to me was crafted, not cobbled, where most partner programs end up being just a listing on the website with a button to find out more information. And then when that person becomes a lead and they ask the sales rep about how that goes, they're like, we have no idea. Talk to that company. 
and then that's at the end of it. And there's no follow-up process. There's no understanding of how those things connect. And one of the biggest pieces of advice that I try to instill in companies that I work with have, you know, API integrations, they want to develop partnerships. Like they have their sales reps specifically have to become an expert on that relationship, not an expert on their partner's technology, but it's like, how does that connection function? And what are the benefits of that connection? That's as far as you really need to go, but it's, you have to be able to come to market and come to that prospect and that deal with a crafted solution. And the only way to do that is to really understand multiple facets of it. Nine times out of 10, when it's a single point solution tech company, they only really know their version of it because that's all they've been taught and shown. But it's if you want to develop really great deals in the enterprise space, because they have all these moving parts and different personas and decision makers, if you can come in with a partner and understand how that connection is made, it's like you get thrown to the head of the line. I've seen deal cycles and you probably add some color on this too, but I've seen deal cycles, average deal cycles when a partner is included get dramatically reduced to a third. If it's 10 months, I've seen deal cycles go down to two months because you're able to skip all of these things that are completely irrelevant where you're getting down to the brass tacks and you're able to make a connection. You have that authority. You know what's going on. You're instantly relevant to the conversation and you're seen as an expert in that room very quickly because of the relationship you have with that partner. And I don't mean to go on a rant or a tangent there, but it's just a lot of partnership. I feel like it's just one of the most overlooked levers in most tech businesses that could easily be a massive lever for going upstream. And that's literally what I work on daily is helping tech companies go upstream and up market. And one of the levers that I help pull often is the partnership. So in that particular vein, in deal cycles, deal sizes, what do you see in the partnerships? Do you see a shortened sales cycle, increased conversions, lower return? Like what are some of the numbers that you've been able to see inside of the partnership ecosystem working those deals? Yeah, we have seen our time to close significantly lower by about 20%. And our win rate is much higher as well. We're talking 15, 20 points simply because to what you said, the other rep knows enough about Spiff to be dangerous uh, because Mm -hmm. we give them some really basic enablement information, a one minute video, an example of some discovery questions that they might want to ask or to listen to or use your own experience. Think about how you've had commissions in the past. And when you start hearing these words and, and phrases that you're familiar with and have already had issues with in your previous sales jobs, that's to bring Spiff into the conversation. So again, we try to make it real easy for them to understand the value that we add. And we don't want it to be any additional lift for our partner AE. We want them to, once they hear those two or three buzzwords and, and they know that there's an opportunity, we want to handle it for them. They're more yeah. than welcome to come along and join us for every demo, learn about Spiff. But we want it to be so easy for them that we get the lead, we close the opportunity, and then they're getting quota credit and commission six six weeks later that they weren't expecting. Yeah. One other question on partnership specifically is like, how do you build the relationship with the partner sales team? And then two, like, how do you maintain it long term? Like, I've got certain ways, but I'd love to kind of hear your perspective on how you do that. Because I, I feel like that's a really big issue with a lot of companies trying to get into partner sales specifically, and they struggle with working with the other teams. Like, how do you create that urge for them to want to sell with you guys? Yeah, obviously, the rev share is big. They're going to get a piece of it. But for me to build it, I love getting in front of people. And if there's a, an on-site sales meeting that I could come down and buy pizza, maybe I hang out just for a half hour when they're having lunch, yeah. just getting in front of those folks and getting them to know you and understand you. That's really what's been helping me build out these strong partnerships. But to keep it going is just 
pay attention to what your partner does. One of the, the best things that I've done is whenever I sign up a new partner, I create a couple Google alerts, one for the company, one for the segment. And it's about every day during the week that I'm sending a link to an article to a rep over at a forecast company or a lead to, to somebody at an ERP company, simply because hmm. I'm getting every morning at 7 a.m., I'm getting these Google alerts in that are tied specific to the, the partner types I work with so that I can share and feed information into them. And sometimes they're aware they've already heard of it. Other times it's new news to them. But the fact that I'm keeping an eye out for something that they're focused on really just keeps our relationship on the forefront. Yeah, I think that's really important and a lot of people skip over. It's that ongoing relationship work that they stop doing. They stop dating that partner. They stop prospecting to that partner and think that things are going to happen and they stop staying top of mind. In reality, they're, you're so far behind their thought process because they're worried about just closing the next deal. They're worried about whatever partner just showed up in their ecosystem that they haven't thought about you since the first time you were in their office slanging pizza at them. And so it's that ongoing relationship. It's constantly dripping that out to them. And there's a plethora of strategies to do that stuff. And there's a, a colleague of mine that I, I, I trained four or five years ago that I don't want to say he's well known on LinkedIn, but he's well known enough inside of his ecosystem to be the guy to go to for a specific topic. And he's been running very similar to what you just described about being in person, doing the stuff, a nurturing, maintaining a relationship. And he's kind of a one man show at his company. And he brings in tremendous amounts of revenue just by doing that process because it's simple. It just, I feel like a lot of people skip over the amount of consistency that you need to have when it comes to showing up for your partners. Yeah. You kind of answered both questions there a little bit, but lastly, if you were to incentivize or encourage any company to do one of two things, either a focus and use partnerships as part of their growth strategy, or then two plugging Smith a little bit, like a way for them to encourage and motivate their sales team. So two parts there, what would you say to someone trying to implement a partner team? Yeah. So if you're trying to implement a partner team, identify the companies that you can work with that you're able to help the most, but they're able to help you too. So obviously mm. looking at Spiff, we're working with CRM, ERP, HR systems. But for an organization who's trying to get their partner group off the ground, maybe track metrics. How many leads have you sent to a partner this quarter? And include that. Like on Spiff, we, we have a dashboard. When you log in, obviously you're seeing what commissions you're getting paid. You can also see the amount of meetings you've set. You can see mm. some team goals. Being able to bring those to the top so that it has visibility is really going to remind the reps to, hey, I did talk to that guy and I really do think this would be a, a good one for Dwayne to get in right now. The timing's yeah. right. And I'm going to pass it over to Dwayne and I know that he's going to do the same for me, hopefully, when after we get to the first of the year and, and people are looking at revamping their comp plans for the next year. That's great. You know, those are just a couple answers. Hopefully that was what you wanted. I, I think what the pull from that, it's like when you're building a partner network or even talking about sales motivation or anything, it's bringing in the supporting data as to why it's beneficial to the other party. So if you're trying to build out a partner network, it's like, how can you communicate how your solution serves and benefits them and their customer? And on the flip side, was specifically, it's like having visibility and being able to communicate the value of transparency and access to that commission and revenue data for the sales rep. So I think to bring it in a nutshell, it's like communicating value and transparency would answer kind of both of those questions. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not a direct comparison, but it's like tools like Reveal where or Partner Tap, where they connect CRMs and you have visibility into other companies, opportunities, and customers. Is that something that you guys use, you encourage? Is there a similarity between that and Spiff when it comes to working with other companies? Like, How do you actually facilitate mechanistically that sharing of opportunities 
opportunities with a partner in your guys' ecosystem? Yeah, I use Reveal Daily. It's something nice. that enables me to be successful. When I sign up a new partner, I'm able to see the most important thing I look at are common customers and where we have open opportunities that are their current customers or the flip side, because those are two areas that I can immediately have an impact on. I yeah. can you find said- out... Yeah, I was going to say, as soon as you said, look at co-opportunities and existing customers, I was like, you've got a tool. Instantly, I'm like, you have to have Reveal. They're the one of the only technologies that do that. Like PartnerTap was kind of the pioneer of that stuff a decade ago, but it was like you had to connect with that specific rep inside of the system in order to see the opportunities, but with Reveal, just a little more globally. And so I think that's fascinating. So yeah, Reveal, I'll make sure to send this clip to you guys and you can send me the rep share afterwards. Um, No, but it is. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think just building partnerships in general, whether it's the money, or whatever. It's like one of the things I provide is I help companies build like a a partner battle card. And it's literally like a sales sheet for their sales team on here's how our technologies are related. Here are the questions to ask to open up the opportunity. Here's to deem it qualified. Here's basic pricing. Like literally just giving them enough to be dangerous, to open up an opportunity between the companies and then how to send a referral and how to connect. Like the battle card, like that is a game changer so many times because it empowers their sales teams to know how to go win deals a little bit differently and bridge that gap in that sales cycle we were talking about earlier. And so there's like using tools like Reveal. So one, I think making sure that your tech stack specifically enables the initiative and strategy you guys are executing on both from go to market with partner and the sales team internally, but then having the supporting resources and and documentation to support your partners and support your, your AEs. And I've found often that both are not even a thought. How is your company enabling your sales team to talk on behalf of solving problems using your partner network and then vice versa. It's like, how is your go-to-market team building, creating and sharing material for your partnership network to understand the relationship between the tools to then send referrals? It's People seem to think it's like the field of dreams. Oh, we're going to wire up this integration. We're going to add this partner to the website and it's just going to, money's going to flow in and then they don't do anything and they're like, oh, we tried partnerships. It doesn't work. Is there something that you do outside of what we already talked about kind of specific to that? Is there anything different that you think you guys do to build that partnership process or those leads? No, I don't know that we do anything different. You just hit the nail on the head about how a lot of organizations look at partnerships. Like once I throw that logo up on my website, if someone by chance filters all the way down to the partner page, the revenue is just going to flow in. That's not how it works. And you had mentioned it a little bit earlier is just staying in touch with these folks. And and I can't tell you, Dwayne, how many times this has happened to me where I send my quarterly or or my every couple months check in to to my partners that I get a response back. Hey, I'm glad you emailed me. I was just thinking about you the other day. We have XYZ company that is looking for your solution. So if I didn't have my cadence of people to continue to reach out to, I can't tell you how many opportunities I would miss. And it's as simple as setting up a reminder and sending a blog, sending something that is relevant to them. It's never, Hey, there's a Chuck I'm checking in. I mean, that's just as bad as not checking in at all. You got to give them something and you'll get something back. I, I honestly think that you partner with these folks for a reason. Really mm-hmm. just make sure that you stay in touch with them. Find out what's changing within their organization so that you can let them know about any changes that you're having. Chances are you might have more in common than you think. And yeah. every month, everybody's bringing on new logos. It's just always good to stay up to date on who sold to who and what additional opportunities there are for everybody in, in the short term. No, that's great. I think it makes me think of that cliche saying is high tides raise all ships. And so if you can treat your partnerships, your channels, your ecosystem in that regard, then your 
so many good things happen in the business that you, it's hard to translate or equate to partner, but I think we're getting better at it. Well, Chuck, I know we've gone over a little bit, so I appreciate your time. Like where can people find the cliche thing in podcasts? Like where can they learn more about this stuff and connect with you to get, pick your brain on a few things? Yeah. Feel free to, to contact me on LinkedIn. Chuck Regroot. My last name's R-E-I-G-R-U-T. I work for Spiff. Feel free to go to our website and leave a message for me. And I'm happy to not only talk through what Spiff is capable of and is doing to help folks in the market, but if you are new to the partnership world and, and are looking for some advice, I'd be happy to sit down and brainstorm with you and share my successes and my failures to give you some ideas about how to be more successful in the future. No, that's great. I appreciate it. I hope everyone listening takes them up on that. So Chuck, I appreciate you. Thanks for joining us and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, Dwayne, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Selling SaaS Podcast. And if you got value from today, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. 